0: James chapter 4 begins with a conversation about fighting and quarreling. James chapter 4 concludes with a discussion about the will of God. Now at first glance, those two subjects might seem as opposite as night and day. But I think they are related. For when you and I are disobedient to the will of God, the end result is always fighting and quarreling. Jacob was disobedient to the will of God when he stole his brother's birthright, and Jacob and Esau waged war against each other for years to come. David was disobedient to the will of God when he walked on the palatial rooftop overlooking the sacred city of Jerusalem and refusing to look away, turn away, or walk away from a woman taking a bath. The end result is that there was chaos in the personal life of David and in the life of David's family. Jonah was disobedient to the will of God when he boarded a boat set sail for Tarshish some thousand miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. The end result is that the sailors began to fight and quarrel amongst themselves and the seas were in turmoil. Whenever you and I are disobedient to the will of God, the end result is always fighting and quarreling. We fight with God, ourselves, and one another. When you and I come to the concluding lines of James chapter 4, the little brother of Jesus gives us some winsome, wise words about the will of God. This morning, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to James chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 13 to 17. And once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 4, allow me to begin at verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. I can remember as a boy and a young teenager growing up in church, that it seemed that the topic of discerning the will of God was a consistent subject that Baptist people liked. I went to more than one sermon, lesson, teaching, or talk on the topic of discovering the will of God. And I must confess to you that as I walked out of those worship services, I was more confused than clear on the will of God. Maybe it was in the manner and mode in which the missionary or the preacher or the Sunday school teacher framed the conversation. But I had pretty much convinced myself that the will of God was gonna cause me a great deal of pain and discomfort. I had concluded that in order for me to follow the will of God like everybody else told me I was supposed to, I would have to end up living in a tribal hut in Africa without any possessions to my name and suffering from malaria at least six times in my lifetime. Because I guess that was kind of the common theme and message of most of those sermons or testimonies. I can remember walking away from more than a few occasions thinking to myself, you know, the will of God is is kind of like that nasty cherry cough medicine that my mother made me take whenever I was sick. She told me it was good for me, and as I choked it down, I, I, I doubted its belief, I doubted its uh, benefits, and I, I questioned her believability, yet she kept telling me, this is good for you, and that's how I thought about the will of God. It's something that's good for me, but it's going to taste nasty. It's something that's good for me, but it's almost going to make me sicker than as I currently am, I can remember as a young teenager hearing stories about just the mystical nature of the will of God. And as I walked away, I thought to myself, it's really no use. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And I I lived most of my life wondering, would I ever determine, discover, or discern the will of God? I can tell you today that... um, I believe that the will of God is not painful, but pleasurable. I can also tell you that it doesn't taste nasty. The will of God is something that I have tasted and seen, and I know that the Lord is good. And that God's will is not like finding a needle in a haystack. God does not play hide-and-go-seek with his children. He has gone to great lengths to make himself known. And this God who has gone to great lengths to make himself known to you also wants to make known to you his plan, his will for your life. You ask the question, well, Pastor, uh, what changed it for you? Verses, passages of scripture, just like the one I read for you in James chapter 4. It's here that James shows us that people have one of three perspectives to God and his will. There are some people who disregard God and His will. You read of that in verses 13, 14, and 16. There are other people that flat out disobey God and His will. James references that in verse 17 of our passage. But then there are other people who delight themselves in God and His will. And James puts that at the heart of the passage, verse 15. So this morning, I wanna quickly just walk through those three perspectives that you and I can have towards God and his will. First, there are some people that disregard God and his will for their lives. Another word for disregard is ignore. There are a lot of people that simply ignore God. They, They live life as if God doesn't exist. And I'm not just talking about pagans. There are a lot of Christians, people in the church week in and week out who practically speaking live their life as if God doesn't exist. This is who James is talking to, beginning in verse 13. Some of you say, today or tomorrow, we'll do this or do that, go to this city or that city. We'll spend up to a year there. We'll do business and we'll make some money. Now let's be very clear. James is not belittling professional planning. He is not saying it's a bad idea to cast a vision. He is not saying that goal setting is wrong. James has no problem with type A personalities. Individuals that are goal driven and task oriented. There is nothing wrong with being a type A personality. Can I get an amen? All the type A people just amen me right now. Because you know there's nothing wrong with setting a goal and executing that goal. Working a plan. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. James is not belittling professional planning. James also realizes that slothfulness is not a spiritual gift. Nobody is called to be lazy. There's no such thing as a lazy Christian. So there's nothing wrong with planning and preparing and then working out that plan. But the issue that James has is that these professional men and women made their plans with no regard for God. They had an ungodly separation between the sacred and the secular. What drove them in their decision making is that last phrase, making money. The phrase literally means to turn a profit The way James writes it, it's a little bit confusing as to whether it's an honorable prophet or a shady prophet. We don't know if they're above board or under the table, but regardless, their drive, their motivation was to make money. Now, once again, let me stop. Is there anything wrong with making money? No, you've been blessed to be a blessing to somebody else. Absolutely nothing wrong in making money. The problem exists when the primary motivation for your life is money instead of the Messiah. It's a problem, it's an issue if what drives you is currency instead of Christ. And so these business professionals were making plans about how they were gonna live their life Monday through Saturday with no regard for God. We're gonna go to this city, we're gonna go to that city. We're gonna spend some time there. We're gonna spend up to a year there. We're gonna do some business. Why? All in the effort to make money to pad our pockets so we can build our kingdoms, so we can have more. Because after all, this is a dog-eat-dog dog world. It's a show them whos boss kind of existence. You've got to be the one calling the shots. There was a very unhealthy separation between the sacred and the secular. These people who disregard the will of God, James is saying that they're in church on Sunday. And on Sunday, they say Jesus has his place. And on Sunday, they sang songs in First Baptist Jerusalem. Songs like, Lord, I need you. All to Jesus, I surrender. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. They sang all these great songs. Why? Because Sunday was God's day. That was the place and the space where Jesus was to reside. But then, Monday through Saturday, they lived life as if they were sovereign over their own affairs. They lived life as if God had nothing to say about all their business dealings, all their relationships, all their goals, all their dreams, all their plans, all their conversations, all their friendships, all their business partners. It was as if God had nothing to say in every other aspect of their life. There was an unhealthy separation ungodly separation between what was regarded as sacred versus what was regarded as secular. They would say that the sacred life is the private life, the secular life is the public life. Does this sound like anybody you've bumped into before? Does this sound like any culture you've lived in before? We as the American culture, we have a very unhealthy, ungodly separation of the sacred and the secular. In fact, we pride ourselves on this. We say that we are a nation that was founded on the principle of separation of church and state. And friend, let me tell you that if you're gonna make the argument that our founding fathers framed and forged this country under the notion of separation of church and state, let's be very clear what their intentions were. For they intended to keep the state out of the church and they never intended to keep the church out of the state. So when we tout uh, our uh, historical distinctive as American people as saying that we have a separation of church and state, it was never the intention to put Jesus in a box and put him on the shelf, never to get him out uh, any other day than Sunday. Sunday. Because if you live in the culture that I live in, that once I bring Jesus off the shelf, once I bring him out of the box, once I allow Jesus to infiltrate every aspect of my life and my government and my belief system and my politics and my education, then I become an extremist. That's the way we are regarded in the American culture. But, friend, let me tell you, James is saying the church had the very same problem in the first century. They were trying to shove Jesus and place him in a box. And they made plans, and they had goals, and they had professional agendas. And they cut Jesus out of all of that. It's not bad to plan, it's not bad to cast a vision. It is not bad to execute the plan in your company, in your home, in the church. Not bad to do that at all, so long as the plan is subjected to Jesus. These early Christians, some of them, were disregarding God and His will, they were acting as if He did not exist. Let me clarify that. Acting as if he didn't exist in their everyday life, Monday through Saturday. Oh yes, they knew he was sovereign. They had good theology. They knew he was worthy of worship and praise, but they lived the rest of their week, the rest of their life as if they were sovereign, as if they were the one calling the shots. And James just simply asked the question. You, and makes the statement, you don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. If I were to ask you, uh, what are your plans for tomorrow? Most of you would say, I plan to wake up tomorrow. First and foremost, I plan to wake up. And then after I wake up, I'm gonna get ready and then I'm gonna go to work or I'm gonna go to a meeting or I'm gonna go to a conference. Maybe some of you have off tomorrow because of a holiday. So you think to yourself, I'm gonna make plans to work in the yard. I'm gonna do some landscaping. I got a small project I wanna do. I've already gone to Lowe's. I've already gone to Home Depot. I've got all the things that are needed. So tomorrow's the day that we're gonna tackle this project. That's my plan. Friend, let me ask you, do you have any level of certainty that those plans are gonna come to fruition? The answer is no. Doesn't it make sense to lay all your plans at the feet of the one who holds tomorrow in his hands? This is what James is calling the church to do. Take those plans, submit them and subject them to the one who holds tomorrow in his hands. After all, what is your life? Oh, Pastor James, little brother of Jesus, now he becomes deeply philosophical. What is your life? It's one of the deepest, most profound philosophical questions that have ever, that's ever been written that could ever be asked or answered. What is your life? Every life philosophy has to answer a few questions. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Um, What am I doing? Where am I going? If your life philosophy cannot answer in a succinct way those fundamental questions, then my friend, you have a lousy life philosophy. Because your philosophy of life has to be able to answer those basic questions. This is what James is hearkening back to. He's asking a very fundamental question. What is life? I think that only Christianity can sufficiently answer those questions. For you ask me, who am I? I am a sinner loved by God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And by his express will, he has saved me. He saved me exclusively through the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who I am. I am a child of the King. I am Uh, a son of the living Lord. I have my identity in Christ and Christ alone. That's who I am. My identity is in Christ. Why am I here? Well, I'm here on purpose and for a purpose. I am here to glorify God and enjoy him forever that's why I exist. I exist for the express purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. What am I doing? Well, what I'm doing in my purpose is that I'm a servant of the king and I am trying to be a disciple and make disciples for a global impact. That's not just a statement that we slap over the church. That is a mantra that I have over my life. Who am I? I'm a child of the king. I'm a servant of the king. And my express purpose is to be a disciple and make disciples for a global impact. And where am I going in all of this? When my last breath is is, 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 is exhaled, where am I going? My friend, I'm going to heaven because my eternal life began the moment I trusted Jesus as my savior Lord, the moment at seven years of age when I expressed that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, in that moment I went from no faith to faith. In that moment, I went from death unto life, and it's eternal life, and nothing can sever eternal life. If it's if it can be severed, it's not eternal. So nothing can sever eternal life, not even death. Because the moment I stop breathing this air, I start breathing celestial air in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm just traveling through. This is not my home. I'm a citizen here, but my ultimate citizenship is in heaven because when I die, I'm going to go see my Jesus face to face. If your life philosophy cannot sufficiently and accurately answer those basic questions, then you have a lousy life philosophy. James is being reminded of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's the wisdom literature of Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. In those books of the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of uh, pithy, uh, wise statements on how to live the godly life. And I think that James is hearing the echo of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man Ever to live, he was um, one of the richest men to ever walk this sod. People would come from near and far to ask him a question and just to look at his wealth. And Solomon, at the end of life, he wrote a book that's in the sixty-six books, and he says, um, "Life is meaningless." He uses that word "meaningless" thirty-eight times in Ecclesiastes. Life is meaningless. It is vain. It is empty. Without God, there is absolutely no meaning. That's his premise. Life is meaningless. I think that James hears the echo of that. When he says, what is your life? You are a mist. You're a puff of smoke. Your life is frail and fragile. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. James says to the congregation, listen, I, I know that you think that you're living a long time. You've got 70, 80, 90 plus years. It's nothing. It's a mist. It's, it's just a puff of smoke. The word mist, it, it literally means vapor. I don't think that God is advocating vaping, but I do think that God is saying that your life is like that puff of air that comes out of somebody's mouth. It's nothing. It's just a mist. It's, it's a vapor. It's it's here one moment, it's gone the next. Your life is a mist. He's telling this group of people that disregarded God and his will, listen, you're acting as if you're sovereign. You're not sovereign. You are nothing more than a vapor. You're a mist. You're a puff of smoke. You are one breath away from extinction on planet Earth. Your life is so fragile. Your life is so frail. And yet you think that you're the one calling the shots? You think that you're in charge? You think that you're sovereign over the affairs of your life? Who are you kidding? God is the only one who's existed from eternity past to eternity future. He is the sovereign one. Friend, let me ask you, if you knew without any shadow of a doubt you only had 48 hours to live, what would you do, where would you go, and who would you see? If you knew... You only had 48 hours to live. Where would you go? What would you do? Who would you see? I've had the awesome privilege of being able to stand at the deathbed of several really good people. And and in that moment, do you know the only thing that matters to that person? Jesus. That's it. The only thing that matters is what did I do with Jesus? And you know what's second? Family and friends. That's it. I have never stood at the deathbed of anybody who said, will you please bring me my bank account? Will you bring me all my trophies? Will you bring the plaques off the wall and let me see them one last time? Will you let, just give me a laundry list of all my accolades and all my possessions, all my trucks and cars and boats and houses and vehicles? Will you, will you tell me all of, that, all of that stuff? Nobody, I've never met anybody who does it. The only thing that matters on the death day is Jesus. And the second thing right behind it is family and friends. I've got a good friend who reminds me frequently, if Jesus matters so much, on your death day, don't you think he ought to matter that much on this day? If Jesus matters that much to you on your death day, don't you think he, need to, he needs to matter that much on this day? Let me ask you, my friend, uh, how old are you? I know that for some of you, I'm not supposed to ask that. And really, some of you are saying, it's none of your business. But I get that, I understand. But let me just ask, how old are you? Because I can tell you quite proudly, that I am 16,542. I think I look pretty good for 16,542. Of course, that's the days that I have lived on planet Earth. Most of us count our existence in years. But the psalmist said, number your days aright. Every day is a gift from God. Nobody has promised tomorrow. So live this day As if God gave you a gift and you gave him a promise. I'm going to live this day for your good and for your glory. James says in verse 16. Some of you who disregard God and his will. You boast and brag. Now they're not boasting and bragging in the Lord. Both Jeremiah and the apostle Paul said boasting and bragging in the Lord is a good thing. They're boasting and bragging in their own accomplishments. The word there that's translated boast, brag, it means, it implies self creation, self made man, self made woman. They boasted in what they could do, what they had done. And James says, You disregard God and His will. Secondly, there are some people that disobey God and His will. To disobey is one step further than disregard. To disobey in the context of James chapter four, verse 17 is to know the good that you ought to do, but you don't do it. So in other words, you sin. It's to know the good that you're supposed to do, and yet you don't do it. Okay, I've got to ask this question. Why in anybody in their right mind who knows what they ought to do, why would they not do it? I got a one-word answer. The answer, pride. The only thing that keeps me from being obedient to God is me. It's my pride. It's your pride. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said that the demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one day before us. All of us are affected by pride. And pride is a horrific vice. In fact, it has been called the halitosis of the soul. You've all met people with bad breath, haven't you? They've got halitosis. It is obvious to everybody else but them, right? I mean, but you, you talk with them and whoo, it is foul. It is vulgar. It is like, whoa, get a Tic Tac, brother. I mean, you know, you, you need some help. And we've all met people that way. And it seems that everybody else knows they got bad breath except for them. That's pride. That's what happens with pride. Pride has been described as the one disease, the only disease that makes everybody else sick but the person who carries it. (laughs) That's pride. Because pride, it affects and infects everybody. And everybody who sees it says that's repulsive. That makes me sick in my stomach. Except for the person who is being boastful and proud. And James says that it's that pride that would cause somebody to know the will of God and not do it. So what do you do with your pride? Slaughter it. Slay it. Sacrifice it unto Christ. Because if you don't, then you'll give in to your pride. And James says in verse 17, it will result in sin. And according to The author of the Hebrew letter, God disciplines his children. His children who are involved in sin, God disciplines you. He disciplines you, brother. He disciplines you, sister. God disciplines those that he loves. Why? Because God does not allow us to sin successfully. So spare yourself a lot of pain. Spare yourself a lot of discipline. Today, slaughter your pride unto Christ. Give it unto him. James says that you can approach God in one of three ways. You can disregard God and his will. You can disobey God and his will. That's verse 17. But third and finally, you can delight yourself in God and his will. This is verse 15. This is at the heart of our passage. This is at the heart of the passage, not just theologically, but also literally. There are two verses before verse 15. There are two verses after verse 15. This is the hinge upon which the end of James 4 seems to swivel. This is an important verse. So I wanna hone in on this. I want you to look at it once again, James chapter four, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it's the Lord's will, We'll do our plans. If it's the Lord's will, we'll go to this city. If it's the Lord's will, we'll make this much money. And if it's the Lord's will, we'll do with our money what he wants us to do with our money. If it's the Lord's will, we'll interact with these people. If it's the Lord's will, this is how we're gonna conduct our days. But if it's not the Lord's will, what's the implication? We ain't doing it. Friend, this phrase, if it's the Lord's will, this is not a cliche this is a conviction. We do not need any more Christian cliches. We don't need any more Christian bumper stickers. We don't need any more Christian statements. We don't need any more little, little small uh, pious words that we can say in the hopes that somebody will think of us as really, really religious and real spiritual. What a great Christian. If it's the Lord's will, I'm gonna do it. If it ain't the Lord's will, I'm not gonna do it. Listen, we don't need another cliche. What we do need is conviction. This is a conviction in which we live our life. We are so convinced that Jesus is Christ. We are so convinced he is sovereign. We are so convinced that he has something for every day of our life, that he has something to say about every word that crosses our lips. He has something to say about every relationship that we pour into. He has something to say about everything that we only wanna do his will. If it's not his will, we don't wanna do it. That's not a cliche, it's a conviction. That's how we live out the Christian life. Doing our very best to decide and discern what God wants us to do and then doing it to the best of our ability. So here's the million dollar question. What is God's will? I'll answer that in two ways. One, there is a general will of God and then there's a particular will of God. The general will of God is what's true for all of God's followers in Christ. It is God's will for you to submit your life unto the Lord. It is God's will. Uh, for you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is God's will for you to tame the tongue. It is God's will for you to resist sexual immorality. It is God's will for you to tell the truth. It is God's will for you to minister to the nations. It is God's will for you to be generous with your resources. It is God's will for you to come to church on a regular basis. It is God's will for you to forgive as you have been forgiven. These things are generally true for everybody. It is God's will. This is how we live the Christian life. It's not the general will of God that's confusing. It's the particular will of God that gets fuzzy. God, what do you particularly want me to do in my life? Because certainly God has a particular will for all of us. And it may be a little bit different. I promise you it's gonna be a little bit different. How do I know that? I know it because God did not call all of you to be a preacher. But he did call some of us to be a preacher. We have different jobs, we have different tasks, we have different assigned missions, we have different responsibilities, we have different shapings, we have different giftedness. All of that is evidence that God has a particular will for your life and his particular will for you may be a little bit different than his particular will for me. Now generally his will for you is the same as his will for me but particularly it may be a little bit different. And this is where it becomes a little fuzzy. This is where all the missionaries stood up and talked. This is where the preacher talked about discerning the will of God. This is where the Sunday school teacher said, this is what it means to follow the will of God. This is where I thought everybody's gotta go to a hut in Africa, and you gotta lose all your possessions, and you're gonna have malaria at least six times. But the particular will of God, you've gotta figure that out. One of the greatest lines that I've ever come across concerning this topic outside of the Bible, was written by Warren Wiersbe. And Wiersbe said this, that the will of God is a living relationship between God and the believer. That's the will of God. The will of God is a living relationship between God and you, the believer, So your particular will is born out of your living relationship that you have with God, your creator and savior, sustainer of life. So the will of God is not cold calculation. The will of God is not a mathematical equation. You do this plus this plus this equals the will of God. The will of God is not a bullseye. Okay, the will of God is not a fenced-in field. Well, let me just get in the center of God's will. I gotta be in the center of the field. I gotta be at the center of the bullseye. As long as I'm at the center of the bullseye, then I'm in God's will. The will of God is not a bullseye. The will of God is not a field with a fence on it. The will of God is not some mathematical equation. What is the will of God? It is a living relationship between God and you, the believer. That's the will of God. So how do you discern that will? How do you get to know God? Prayer, scripture reading, moments of devotion to him, allowing godly, wise people to speak truth in your life. And as you execute that living relationship, as you you live out that relationship with the Lord, he begins to show you particularly what he wants you to do. Generally, he wants you to make disciples of all the nations. But particularly, which nation does he want you to go to? Does he want you to go across the street or around the world? I don't know. you got to figure that out. How do you figure that out? Prayer, Bible study, talking with other Christian believers. Generally, God wants you uh, to be very generous with your resources. So how much are you supposed to give to the church? I don't know. you got to figure that out. How do you figure that out? Prayer talk to God about it I promise you you talk he'll answer just go with a holy hunch if that's all you got (laughs) but God has a particular will for you so that tells me that God has given me a plate and on that plate I gotta have some stuff on it so as your pastor let me ask you what is currently on your plate that doesn't need to be on your plate all of us have a lot of things to do right Is there anybody who doesn't have enough things to do? Nobody. We, all of us will say, I got too much to do. I don't know how I'm gonna get it all done. Well, let me ask you, as your loving pastor, let me ask you, is there anything on your plate you need to take off? Something that is not part of God's particular will of your life? What what do you need to take off? Second question is, what needs to be on there that's currently not on there? Because God did not call you to slothfulness. He wants you to do something. So what is the something that he wants you to do? Friend, Jesus is our example in all things, life and practice. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I've got to interpret that as that is God's general will for Jesus and his particular will for Jesus. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And eventually, Jesus would declare on the cross, It is finished. What's finished? His mission has been accomplished. So you and I would have to agree that Jesus was obedient to the will of God. Would you agree with me? Yes, Jesus was obedient to the will of God. He was obedient in the general sense and in the particular sense. And if we agree on that, we also have to agree with this that in his ministry, There were some people he ministered to and other people he didn't minister to. There were some cities he went into and some cities he didn't go into. There were some places he visited and other places he didn't visit. There were some people he fed and other people he did not feed. There were some sermons he preached and other sermons he did not preach. And my question is, how did he determine that? How did he determine where to go on that given day? Who to talk to in that given moment. For the better part of the majority of Jesus' life, he spent time in a carpentry shop. Why? Why was he a carpenter and not a banker? Why was he a carpenter and not a doctor? Why was he a carpenter and not a tax collector? And you say, well, because his dad was a carpenter. Joseph had a carpentry shop, and so it was customary in that day for little boys to do what their daddies did. And of course, you're right about that, except... There have to be some examples of some sons who did not do what their fathers did. So why? Why did Jesus become a carpenter? And then why did he change professions? Because the Bible is clear that at the age of 30, he left the carpenter shop. He switched professions. No longer a carpenter. Now he's an itinerant preacher. And furthermore, why did he do that at 30 and not 28 years of age? I mean, a three-year ministry of Jesus was great. Don't you think a five-year ministry would be more better? I mean, Jesus, I mean, why did you choose 30 instead of 28? I'm asking questions about the particular will of God the Father to God the Son. And my question is, how did Jesus determine that? And some of you will answer it, it's because he's God. And you're right, Jesus is God. And he just knows what he's supposed to do. I get that. But you know, the Bible does give us a clue. Repeatedly, the scripture says that Jesus went by himself alone to pray. He prayed. He prayed a lot. And what did Jesus do in those prayers? I think he discerned the particular will of God in those prayers, That God the Son wanted to so delight himself in the will of God the Father that he went on a regular basis, daily in fact, to go in prayer and say, Father, what do you want me to do? In fact, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus stumbles and staggers into into the Garden of Gethsemane. He collapses under the weight of the moment. And he prays, not once or twice, but three times. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. His food was to do the will of him who sent him. He desired, he delighted himself in God the Father. And in this moment, in this gravitas moment, in this amazing moment, he kneels, his sweats like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he kneels and he says, not my will, but your will be done. I know I came to seek and to save the lost. Is there another particular way I can accomplish that except through the cross, but not my plan, but your plan? And on that night, Jesus went into the garden wrestling. He left the garden resolved. He stumbled into the garden. He walked out strengthened. He went in distraught. He walked out determined. What's the difference? Jesus prayed. And if prayer is the tool that works for Jesus, it just might be the tool that works for you, beloved. Listen, I don't want you to stress. I don't want you to to wonder, is finding the will of God like a needle in a haystack? No, because the will of God is a living relationship between God and you, the believer, and how you determine and discern the particular will of God is that it's born out of your relationship with God in Christ. So you pray, and you pray, and you pray. The apostle Paul says of Jesus, He humbled himself, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted Jesus because he humbled himself and he came to him, delighting himself in prayer. And so God will delight himself in you as you delight yourself in him. You go to him in prayer; he gives you his particular will for your life, and so. This This morning, I say to you, the mantra of my life, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done. Not my plans, your plans. Not my will, your will. Not my activity, your activity. This is not a cliche. This is a conviction of life. We want to live our life so in tune with the will of God that he is pleased with us, that he exalts us. Why? Because we exalt ourselves in him and him alone. Thy will be done. So this morning maybe maybe like big brother Jesus you just need to come to the altar and pray. Maybe you just need to kneel before the Lord and say your will be done. Your will be done. This day every day in my life. Heavenly Father we bow before you we give this invitation. We pray that you are Exalted, that you are glorified. And we pray that out of our living relationship that we have with you, that you will show us your perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. He became sin, who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross love so amazing